tuning in to Offshore Explorer with uh, Scott Dodgson. I am Scott Dodgson. I've been asked to do a couple of stories. Um, a lot of things in sailing that are interesting in, in, in just sort of human dynamics um, that maybe you would never actually come apart because you're outside of your tribe. I mean, very much outside your tribe. And I have a couple of stories like that that are, uh, you can draw sort of larger parallels and some implications to them. And they're good for sort of analyzing yourself and maybe analyzing, you know, what you're, what you're all about as far as sailing. And I know there's a lot of guys um, and gals that go out sailing, couples, etc. And, and, and it's kind of a... You know, like cruising is one thing, and and race boating is another thing, and and just uh, you know some leisure stuff going here. You know, a lot of people in California they go out to Catalina, uh, maybe up to Channel Islands, which are all absolutely beautiful, and 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 it's a little little great sailing up there. Um, and then they come back, and that's sort of the extent of their uh, their sailing. Um, their life is always on go it's always running and the sailboat is just another uh, recreational hobby and then there's people like me who made a living and spent a lifetime of sailing and and i think became a real sailor so today i'm going to tell a story that's a little tangential to uh sailing it it has sailing in it um but it also is about sort of the dynamics that happen in um, an anchorage. And, um, you know, we, we always joke about it, you know, as, as the anchor drags kind of joke. But in reality, um, you know, it's just, it's a community. And in communities, you have different personalities and, and, and different things going on all the time. So a commonality with all all the people obviously is sailing and they're on sailboats. They live on sailboats. It could be power boats as well. And you meet a lot of different people. So this story uh, is called uh, death in Cairo. Knowing the truth about yourself may be the hardest insight to discover because human beings have a natural ability to deceive themselves. And don't we all do that? Even some of the most crucial aspects of our mental imaginations, we, 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 de we deceive ourselves about them. So being deceitful about who you are, what you are, um, it, it's commonplace. We, we kid ourselves. Yeah, well, you kid yourselves. Um, what isn't commonplace is sort of uh, truthfulness. There's like this global business of selling insights and truth. Um, the path has been monetized, as a friend of mine said, who is up in uh, Santa Barbara. Um, you've got a plethora of guides to your personal truth. Um, they've existed forever and ever. They just take different forms, you know. You've got your gurus and your spiritual masters, your yogis, your priests, your priestesses, your rabbis, your pastors, your fathers, your friars, your monks, your shamans, your psychologists, doctors, prophets, gods, and writers. And writers, 
well, they're the most dangerous. Their commitment is to the deceit, not to truth. Truth is a MacGuffin. If you don't know what a MacGuffin is, it is it's sort of the stated purpose of the plot. Um, in other words, um, we're going to stop the nuclear bomb from going off. The nuclear bomb is the MacGuffin. Um, the whole story is about how you stop it. That's what a MacGuffin is. And writers use truth as a kind of MacGuffin. And I should know, because I, that's what I do as I write. So the best writers are magicians, and they're, they're big at casting spells. And if you look at them really closely, you'll realize that these spells can vaporize under just the slightest bit of scrutiny. A skilled writer can spin a story and which all the evidence uh, of the existence of the story, of the truth, it all appears to be irrefutable. It's just that's it. That's, that's the real deal. But as guides to the personal truth point out, on the way down the path to salvation or improvement or wherever it is, insightfulness, wherever you want to go, the writer is just, he's got like a tether. Okay, so he can go down that path or, or like down that rabbit hole and back up and he doesn't, he doesn't care. He does it with a smile. He always knows he's going to come back. Some writers don't. Some writers just get caught up in their own heads and disappear down the rabbit hole and become mentally unstable. And you do that, it happens, you get a little delusional, you get depressed. It can happen. But I'm a writer and a sailor. So my psychology is a little bit different. Um, I think of it sort of like stepping uh, from one boat to another or stepping from the dock to the boat. Rule number one, never straddle between land and the boat. It's how you fall into the water. But to tell you, I've been wet many times, mostly being very drunk. I have fallen into the drink so many times that it taught me how to swim. It's a joke. Of course, I knew how to swim beforehand, but it's an illustration. And I don't panic while I'm falling. I have deceived myself with so much conviction. I smile as I'm falling into the dark waters of life and sink into the quiet, darkest bottom. One time I was coming, my boat was on anchor. I was in Antigua. And um, I had just broken up with my girlfriend. Um, I was very drunk. And I was stepping from the pontoon. I had a high freeboard on the boat. Into a, My one foot would go into the porthole. And then I would be up on the deck. And uh, with the painter in my hand, I had to stick it through and, and put it on the uh, cow horns. And I stepped on the painter. And when I did that the dinghies slid out from underneath me and I fell straight down in the water with the painter in my hands. And being very drunk, I had a few minutes to sort of reflect and gain my whatever. And the wind was blowing. So the dinghy is sort of going with the wind. I had to make a long swim, probably about 50 meters, as hard as I could to catch the dinghy, start the motor up again, come up and do the whole thing again. And this time I didn't step on the painter, but I got in. But it's an illustration of kind of what I'm talking about, is that 
we go do stuff and we think about ourselves and not about the circumstances or the effects on other people. And this story, Death in Cairo, is about kind of the effect that some very crazy people had on me and I had on them. So the problem with my behavior and being a daredevil and, you know, rushing around the world in sailboats and ponytails and perios is it's at once very dangerous and it's also very alluring, especially to people that are innocents who give you confidence and who trust you and you screw that. So I met uh, Nabila and Alice at a dinner party above um, aboard... Uh, Shit, I'm going to start that again. I met Nabila and Alice at a dinner party aboard uh, Alan and Katrina's um, boat in Petty Harbor in Simi, Greece. Um, I've written about and did a podcast on Simi, and I spent a lot of time there. And lots of stories and lots of interesting things going on. And Petty Harbor is just absolutely one of the most beautiful places in the world. So Nabila was Egyptian, and Alice was English. And they had like a, a small boat, you know, 30-something foot sailboat. And Nabila was uh, supposedly a very keen sailor. Um, Alice had loads of experience sailing in England. And um, they, you know, they were married. They were married. He was a very handsome Egyptian man, and, and she was a very sort of, you know, um, good-looking um, English woman, uh, Lovely, of course, um, and and their boat was nice. Um, it was a good boat because they used to keep it a marmorous, and they would come and sail to Greece and Turkey and back and forth, and and then leave it on the hard in that part of the world and go off and do their business for the rest of the year. Um, Alan was French, and Katerina was Italian. Um, their boat was a very sleek 90 foot fiberglass sailing yacht that Alan, Alan had, that Alan had, um, designed himself. And the interior of this boat was almost like a catamaran interior, had a couple of different floor levels in the salon. It was huge, very wide boat. And it was, it was a very cool boat and he had built it himself cause he had owned a shipyard and. Da, 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 da. He was retired, and if there's anything I could say um, about Alan was that um, Alan was a look-alike for Yul Brenner, absolutely a look-alike. And Katerina was she is just you know wonderful Italian woman, you know, big happy, you know, just just full of insight in life, very wonderful. And then on another boat was uh, Oscar and Marguerite. Those, they were both Italian. And they had a 60-foot um, custom sailing yacht that was built in Italy. And, um, of course, then there was my girlfriend, Laura, and she was from North Dakota, which to me was, you know, kind of a foreign country. So this made the core of our little group that anchored in Simi and partied together, essentially, for the whole summer. And we'd actually done that for a number of summers, but this summer was an important one. And, you know, we would take hikes together, we water skied, we, we worked on our boats together. And, and 
you know, everybody did their, their thing. Well, Nabila is sort of the focus of this thing. He, he was a handsome guy, um, very elegant in some ways and a brute in other ways. And the first thing you notice about couples is, is how they interact with each other. And Nabila treated Alice poorly. He had a heavy dose of that Middle Eastern misogyny. Laura was constantly offended by his remarks about women. Alice seemed to take it, um, but there was something also very curious about her behavior. And it took a long time for, for me and, and for Laura to understand. She was very subservient to Nabila, to a fault. But she was also very strong-willed and an insane exhibitionist. Um, she would walk completely naked on the boat all the time. Um, she would drive her dinghy naked. Um, she'd come up to the boat naked. And once, before Laura and I had come to terms with her constant nakedness, and she had a beautiful body, don't get me wrong, she was a nice woman, um, Alice came to our boat while I was kneeling on a teak deck, repairing a section of the deck caulking. You know how the caulking starts to separate from uh, in the seams, and so you dig that out and you know put down new caulking, pretty much what I was doing. And it's tedious, and it's on your knees, and it's scraping, and it's sanding, and it's preparing. So she comes right up next to me, standing on the pontoon of her little dinghy, and her breasts are right in my face. And she said, she asked, is Laura here? And she handed me the painter to her dinghy, and she just hopped up on board. And she didn't have any pants on either. And Laura, who poked her head out of the companionway, was shocked to see her naked. And she just came in, and, and they went downstairs. And, and Laura was, I think, pretty much blown away by what was going on. And I was left on the deck with my own misogynistic thoughts on how delicious Naked Alice was. I tried to quash those thoughts with great effort because I was really committed to Laura. I mean, I really loved Laura. And they weren't entire, but they weren't entirely quashed. Neither were they for... Alan or Oscar, she was like, Alice was the bait. Nabila was the fisherman, and he was after all our girlfriends. So Alice was sent to seduce the girlfriends and the boyfriends. Nabila just wanted the girlfriends. And this was their game. And the game was they would take pictures. So I had never run into this before. This was like a new thing for me. And we were all a bit worried, but kind of kept it. It's not something that you get your back up and just go, oh, well, I'm not going to do that. There's this whole process. And he was very good at manipulating the process. So after Alice left, I asked Laura what the visit was about. And she said, Alice asked if Nabila could photograph her ass. He wanted to photograph her nude on the boat. I could see that Laura was, you know, a bit flattered. Um, Laura was a handsome woman. And she asked me, like straight up, this is a typical woman question. She asked me if I wanted to have sex with Alice. Well, you know, guys, we'll have sex with almost anything. I mean, we just, it's just not, it's not even a question. We don't even have to answer that question. Um, but I, I, I was prepared for that question, but not with my head filled with these wild fantasies of 
Laura and Alice. The lure of sex with this oversexed woman was like chum to a shark, and I was the shark. Only I didn't realize there was a fisherman as well. I wouldn't take the bait, and Laura briefly entertained the prospect. I could see, you know, she had a lot of sexual energy as a human being, and and sexual adventures started to you know, would be in her mind, and then it sort of would morph into anger, and that anger would emptied into rage, and and it was like, how dare he ask my girlfriend to shoot nude pictures of her? I was, I got pissed. Did I have the right to be pissed? Laura was my girlfriend, not my wife. Laura would get prickly if she thought for a second I was deciding something for her. I was left in this weird no man's land of insult, opportunity, and I didn't have any marching orders. Laura could have said this is an insult and go defend my honor. And I would have found that very satisfying because of its simplicity. And I would have said, okay. And I felt that was something more insidious. And this is the writer in me. Something more insidious. And it intrigued me. Nabila was this very dark and perverted character, but he was, he was also very interesting. And when you meet people that are interesting, you kind of, if you've got any kind of level of curiosity, I have more curiosity than I probably should, I, I just wanted to understand. I want to understand what was going on here. And a few minutes later, Nabila came to the boat and apologized to, um, to Laura and to me that Alice had misunderstood his intentions and his eyes, I could see his eyes licked every square centimeter of Laura's body. I mean, it was hot. We're all like in, you know, bikinis and in, you know, bathing suits, etc. And I was going to beat the shit out of him right then. And Laura, she was familiar with this kind of guy. Uh, her North Dakota morality kicked in at that moment, and she dragged my arm close to her bosom. Nabala saw this. He decided on another tact. He asked if I had any teak. I did. He wanted to buy some for some repairs on his boat, and I agreed to sell him some. And I sold him a couple of teak boards. This is something, by the way, if you're going to go cruise, um, knowing something that is particularly valuable in the place you're going, kind of bring your own supply. I used to, I used to pick up teak um, in Trinidad, Trinidad um, for, for nothing, okay? And I'd have it milled so it would fit all sorts of, um, uh, mostly for decks, right? Plus I had a bunch of other stuff. And I had a nice little place down below which I could put all the teak and stuff. And I would take it to Greece and Turkey. And, and teak is extremely expensive there. And I would sell it to people. You know, piece here, piece there. Um, it, was, it, was a nice, it was a nice little way to make money. If I spent, I think I'd spent four or $500 on teak, I'd, I'd get close to 2000 back on it be that it would be that plus a lot of times i actually installed the tickets myself so that's just uh, one of those little tips so back to nabila he says um 
that he he you know he was sorry and he wanted to buy some from some teak and I, I sold him some teak boards and he did this whole thing like oh yeah we're you know I'm here to really look for it. sorry she said that but I'm here to look at your teak and and then they invited us uh, over to his boat for drinks later that evening we kind of agreed we reluctantly agreed I should say and Laura and I turned our reluctant happy hour into this sort of intriguing game. Earlier in the afternoon, Christina came over to warn us about Nabila and Alice. Laura's flirt with the idea had been soundly quashed, thank goodness. Um, it would it just, I was too protective and I had no right to be protective, but I couldn't imagine him touching her. It just would make me insane, jealous. And he had actually turned out, Nabila had actually turned out to do the same routine on her and Alain. But Alain, that feisty old Frenchman, the Yule Brenner double, he wasn't having any of it. He pulled a knife on Nabila and threatened to cut his balls off. And this sort of ended any attempts to get into Christina's pants. And, and Nabila just, he kind of laughed it off as a joke and everybody sort of kept as, as friends and you know there but there was a serious kind of thing going on there between the two of them but Alain was one of the coolest guys ever but Laura it turns out was disappointed with my reaction she told Christina I should have stood up for her at the first offense instead I sold him teak and Christina's eyes lit up real she was very brightly lit up she goes oh you took his money that's better, she said in her broken English. He values money more than his wife. So this is a blow to him because he didn't need the teak. You made him buy teak. And she tossed her hands in the air and laughed louder and louder. When she climbed down into the dinghy, she says, we'll come over tonight and save the awkwardness. I'm telling Alan what you did, taking his money. Oh, what fun. I had some sense of redemption with Christina's comments. The writer in me wanted to go down the rabbit hole with this guy. Who was he? What was he? He prayed on the bow of his boat every day. He was a Muslim. How does this perverse sex perversion match up with his religion? I mean, I, I, this was a whole wild area of stuff that, that I really wanted to know. Turns out that Nabila had come from a very rich and powerful Egyptian family that had very strong ties to President Nasser. He owned a string of hotels and car dealerships, but he made the most money in his printing business. He printed calendars with naked women showing their booty. Because you can't do nude, but you can show booty. And especially if they're foreign, that's better because you don't want to insult an Egyptian woman or an Arab woman. So he ended up selling these printed calendars showing booty to like every garage, tiny office, hotel, and restaurant, and anywhere there was a calendar to be hung. And he literally made millions and millions of dollars. He, he actually sold over 50 million calendars. It's a shitload worth of calendars. And he's making a buck a piece on each one. 
Alice was Miss January. He showed us his portfolio over drinks. I mean, just women, naked women, boobs, butts. And he's just telling us all these stories about how wonderful and artistic and beautiful they were. And, you know, all the women were foreign women. These are like craziness. So I, I actually didn't quite understand at the time. I said, why are they all foreign women? And, she's, and he said that uh, Egyptian men got turned on by whores. Because foreign women are all whores. And not a woman who looks like his wife could be a whore. So Laura and I glanced over at Alice, who was sitting on the settee with her legs crossed, wearing this sheer top. You could see straight through it, revealing her breasts. She had panties on. I guess she got dressed up for dinner. And in crisp kind of English accent, she said, of course, we all know this is not true. Not all foreign women are whores. It is what they believe because they're of their ignorance and conservatism. She said, Egyptian men, like all others, lack any kind of maturity. It's all. I'm a big man, but they act like schoolboys getting their first peek at a woman's underwear. This is their weakness. And she sat back and Nabila just basically ignored her. But the writer in me emerged with this question. What is in it for you? This I asked Alice, and she didn't answer. But Laura jumped in and admonished me for putting Alice in a problematic position, and Nabella sat on some large pillows like some kind of pasha, laser-focused on Laura's legs. He was within a foot. I, he, I think he had to exhibit every amount of personal control that he wasn't just leaping on Laura. Because Laura was a very good-looking woman. She was very sexy. And then just as this tension is kind of rising up between Alice saying, you know, Arab men are this, and, you know, he looking at foreign women, and all this kind of madness going on, Christina and Alan boarded the boat, and she brought canopies, and Alan brought a jug of wine, and we drank, and we had fun, and it broke up, and it became nice, and you know, Nabella got out of his sex funk thing and, and it turned out, he turned out to be an interesting person. And, you know, we talked about business and some politics. He talked about American politics at the time, you know, Ronald Reagan was the devil. Yet we still could do business with him. He was the devil, actually. He hired me to, to make some repairs on his deck. We were talking about this. This is something that you do in the Anchorage. You're always talking about each other's boats. Uh, yeah, I want to do this. And, you know, I got I to gotta change the oil filters on my generator or, you know, or my engine or whatever the case may be. And, hey, what do I do with the oil if we're out here? And da, 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 da. So he asked me if I could repair the work. And he had bought enough teak to, to, to do all the work. And I said, sure. Um, I hadn't been doing a lot of charters that summer. So taking on a nice job that paid well because it's uh, skilled work. And um, we agreed on a price. We shook hands, and he was going to take Alice uh, with him because he had to go back to Cairo. 
and they were going to go out on the airport roads. Now, Simi is about 40-minute one-way trip away, and um, maybe a little bit longer. Um, and she was going to go with him to the airport and say bye-bye and all the rest of this stuff. And then she would catch the uh, first ferry back in the morning, and because um, there's no airports on uh, Simi that to speak of. And um, if I would if I would look after his boat, um, I agreed because I'd be working on it. It's no big deal. So the next day, um, kind of getting over my little bit of a hangover, I replaced a couple of six foot sections, six foot lengths of deck, um, you know, and I had to let the caulk dry overnight um, before it finished, you know, actually doing caulking all the seams. And I weighed teak down with a couple of heavy pieces of iron. I kept on board for just this kind of job. I drug the pieces of iron. Um, they were like irons, like, you know, to do your clothes kind of irons, but they were super heavy. And um, I, I found them in an antique shop, and they were perfect for holding teak down and letting it dry. And I dragged those things all over the world. Extra weight on the boat, I guess. I always I couldn't find it in my heart to get rid of them. And I waited um, till the next afternoon before I went back to the boat, hoping that I'd have a good excuse to see Alice. Because Alice was really playing on my mind. I mean, I was really getting... I was entranced. I was just... I was all... I just couldn't... I just, I just wanted that woman in. I'm fighting this. I have a beautiful woman as a girlfriend and a... And a you know, it's the relationship doesn't have a commitment, but it could be. And I'm just, oh, I'm just, I don't know what it is. Just this lust is just absolute lust. And it was driving me absolutely crazy. And I, I mentioned that, you know, that I was going back to the boat um, to check on the teak because I thought I saw Alice. And Laura called me out on it. She says, "You're, you're, you want to talk to, Al you want to talk to Alice. Why do you want to talk to Alice?" And you know, and she got mad at me. I mean, really mad at me. And she was right. She had every right to. I mean, I wasn't doing anything, but Jesus. So I did go back. I finished the job, and but Laura came with me. And I kept wondering to myself why I was so obsessed with this girl and what was happening to me. And we kind of kind of went on. Um, and she didn't come back right away. Um, she was gone a few days, and Laura had gotten a phone call from her her parent, her mother, that her father was sick and that uh, she was asked to go home or to come home. And she did. She said, okay, I'm, I'm going to be on the way. And um, so Laura, who really wasn't ready to commit to the relationship and who I had showed the best parts of the world on a yacht to, told me she was going to go home about a father being ill. I thought it was just a likely excuse. I accepted it. I'd seen this movie before. And I pass the boat watching responsibility off to Oscar and Marguerite who were going to hang around for a couple of weeks in Petty Harbor 
and I would go to Rhodes and drop um, Laura off. She'd go on the on the airplane and go back to North Dakota, and then I would come back. And Oscar was an interesting guy because Oscar was born with one arm, and um, he was absolutely the most positive and funny human being ever. He was hilarious all the time, very quick. And he had sold a women's shoe company for a you know for a small fortune. And has decided to set sail and sail around the, the Med. And eventually they were going to sail around the world. And Margarita was a swim instructor in Venice. She had actually was a former member of the Italian Olympic team, swim team. And she was a breaststroker. Wonderful shoulders. And um, their big plan, of course, was to sail around the world. But they were going to do it and and teach children about all the places that they went to. And they were set, they had set up this whole, um, um, this sponsorship and, and, and foundation and all the rest of this. And Laura had become fast friends with Margarita. Um, there was a sort of a nobility about this couple. They, they had, they were wonderful. They were free. They were, they were honest. They were doing good in the world. And, um, you know, the one-armed sailor goes around the world, and he could sail. He could sail. He was he was a good sailor. And um, I I know I, I'd spent some time with him um, working out some, some different kinds of systems and stuff so that, uh, you know, because he was only using one, one hand, and, you know, one hand is one thing um, in light wind, but in heavy wind, sometimes you need two. Most of the times you need to, but anyway, we figured it all out and, you know, we had great fun in, in doing that. So we went back to Rhodes. I took Laura and got off the boat and she had her bags and stuff like this. And we had been together at this point for, I guess, close to two years. And uh, I walked her up to the taxi stand right there in the center of Rhodestown. I put her bags in the trunk of the taxi and we hugged and she got in. I shut the door. And the car left. And I never saw her again. And from that moment, there was a sense that I was falling. That I'd actually created this circumstance and driven her away. Because I couldn't get over this, whatever this magic this girl had. I couldn't get over it. And not that I did anything about it. It's just the way it consumed my insides. So thank goodness the writer in me who's falling down this dark hole with a tether around his, his, his waist knowing that I'm, it's going to snap, it's going to get to the end of the tether and it's, I'm going to snap right back and everything's going to be fine. I'll be able to write about it and I'll be able to, 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 to articulate and understand what the situation is while I was in the middle of it. And, and it's only taking me about 25 years to get around to this. So the, the summer ended fairly slowly. Um, Alan and Christine had put their boat up on the hard in, um, in um, Turkey. Um, they'd spent the, they'll go, they went and spent the winter in Italy, in Milan. And then uh, Oscar and Margarita put their boat up on the hard and went back to Venice to, to do a little family business. The, 
um, Oscar had lost his father very when he was very young, and his mother um, was quite a businesswoman. She owned a big uh, perfume type company and this, that, and other thing. And and so he went up to help her, um, and they were putting the final touches together on this um, this experiment of teaching kids as they traveled. And um, this is pre-internet, so they were doing all of this on film and then mailing it, and then it would be showed in schools. Um, it, it was a very, very laborious uh, job, but very interesting, and um, they, they were very successful at it, I might add. As for Nabila, he had returned and sailed his boat back to Marmaris. Um, they took a mooring. There's some moorings that are out front of the police station in Marmaris Bay. And um, I happened to be sailing into Marmaris in October. And I had gotten this job of uh, driving a powerboat for a Greek family. And it was a, um, it was a uh, San Lorenzo 90. Nice powerboat, planing, 25 knot, you know, 20 knot cruise speed. Super beautiful. And I was going to spend the summer, or I'm sorry, I was going to spend the winter um, down in Egypt. We wanted to go down to the Urgata, which is in the Red Sea, and uh, do some diving. And uh, the Greek owner, um, who I knew actually from another boat, um, was a very cool guy. And it was, you know, he and his wife, and they were fun, and um, it was going to be a good time. But I saw their boat. I saw Nabila and Alice's boat. So I took my dinghy over to the boat and knocked on a hull, and Alice emerged from the companionway, and she wore a veil covering her face. I, I saw instantly the panic and desperation in her eyes. Nabila had beaten her. He left her on the boat with no money. She was forbidden to leave the boat, and he promised to kill her if she left. She told me all this, and her hands were just shaking like you couldn't believe. And I said, well, what about going home to England? And she heaved a deep sigh and began to cry, like inconsolably, like, like, like I just chopped her foot off. She was crying so hard. After a little while, she kind of gained a little bit of control, and she said, asked if I would like coffee. I said, yeah, I'd love some coffee. And I came on board, and she explained that there was a policeman who had her money. He would buy her groceries every week and bring them out to the boat. Nabila had taken her passport, and and her he had made sure that she gave up her English-British passport. So she only had an Egyptian passport. But she was really subject to much harsher rules than just civil law. She was subject to Muslim law because she had converted. And Nabila was within his rights, so he thought, to kill her for whatever reason he made up. I kept suggesting, just go to the British Embassy, tell them your story, they can help you. She said she couldn't. Nabila had a lot of ties with the government, with the Egyptian government, and she was trapped until Nabila decided otherwise. But I wasn't going to give up. I was just obsessed. I was like insane, obsessed. 
I wanted to help this woman. I, I, I wanted to, to lengthen the tether on this, on this fall that I have been going through and use all the tools that I had of being a captain. I had a couple of boats, everything. I could do something. I could help this woman in her own life. And I'm not saying that it's, I'm, I'm saying that it was sexually oriented, lustful, practical, um, spiritual, romantic. It was all these things all kind of rolled into one. And I was, I've never, I was never like that. Never. And, and not since that time, I was never like that. And, and Nabilo is a dangerous man, you know, and, and I was personally exposed. My boat was exposed. I could lose my boat. I could lose my freedom. Even though everyone in the port is all smiles, but give them an excuse, give them a reason, and they'll come up with all kinds of stuff and rules and regulations and laws, and they'll arrest you. I've avoided being arrested a lot of times, and I've done it using money. And that's, you know, but if they have some kind of, like, mission to fuck you, you will get fucked. And I hate to use that word, but that's exactly what the word is. So they actually threatened her. Um, they were going to take her to jail. They, the, the, I heard that they, one of the police officers who was bring her, bringing the groceries screamed at her like she was a Western whore and all the rest of this kind of stuff. And I mean screamed. Everybody in the anchorage in the bay could hear this guy. And she, I mean, she, she was so afraid for his life. He, he wanted to kill her. This guy was like so out of his mind. So I spent a few days preparing for the, 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 for the journey. You know, I would leave Marmaris and run down to Cyprus. I would refuel and then I'd make the next leg to Egypt. And then I would wait for the owners in Port Said. Then we go down the Suez Canal to Ergata. And it's some of the most beautiful diving in the world. The, the coral is fantastic. It's tons of fish. You can swim with dolphins. There's all sorts of things to do. And, and it's really pristine and beautiful. And um, it's, it's hard because it's hot. And it can be quite windy at times. Um, but they have a lot of facilities. And it's cool. It's a neat place. And... It's a bucket list place, believe me. Um, There's a little everything in there. There's a little dangerous stuff going on too, but that stuff never stopped me. So I had the boat ready, and um, I was waiting for some last-minute instructions. And um, but I couldn't get uh, I couldn't get Alice out of my mind. I could see her boat bobbing up and down, rolling as other boats roared past. And the anchorage was really uncomfortable. It's, 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 although it's in the bay, it's open really to, to the north and northeast, northwest, I should say. And it's, it, it, it can get really dicey in there. And there was a boat that was near her, and it was in this, this old Frenchman who stayed on the boat with his Turkish wife and four kids. And he'd motored past her every day, going back and forth with the kids for school and he and his wife for work. And I discovered that he, he, had, um, he worked in the boatyard, in the woodshop. 
So I had this idea, and I approached him. He was very aware of the situation. He advised me, do not interfere. And I could see the nervousness that he had talking about this. He had a, a sharp, a very sharp, curved scraper that you use to form curved surfaces, and he was making a mast. And his thick, grisly thumb kept flicking the blade, checking for sharpness. I pulled out a 100-euro note, and I told him all he had to do was to toss this letter into her cockpit and keep motoring by. No one would know. No one could see. He took the envelope and he weighed it in the palm of his hand. He looked at the euro note. 200, he politely said. And I gave him 200. I watched through my binoculars the Frenchman motor toward his boat. His wife and kids were loaded into their small Zodiac. The kids were playing with the water, of course. And the wife was sitting there talking to him, and he was telling his wife what he was going to do. She grabs the envelope from him. My plan was about to go very bad. She seemed to look directly at me. Was I jeopardizing them? Was I being so selfish that I was risking another family's boat and livelihood? I could see her directing the Frenchman to go closer to Alice's boat. He pulled alongside. Alice came out from down below and greeted them. They talked for a little bit. The wife handed my envelope to Alice. The Frenchman's wife was emphatic. She pointed. She pounded her fist in the palm of her hand, and Alice nodded. She was being told what to do by the Frenchman's Turkish wife. They held hands. Over the safety lines, they seemed to say a prayer together. And the Frenchman shoved off, and the Frenchman's wife affectionately patted the Frenchman on the shoulder. An hour later, Alice lowered the Turkish courtesy flag down two feet. That was the signal she was willing to come with me. Some people might find it odd that I was driving a Greek-flagged boat in Turkish waters. One might even wonder why a Greek-flagged Italian-made boat was getting repairs in Turkey. Well, the answer is warranty. The Turkish yard had a contract um, to fix and do all the warranty work on San Lorenzo's. So that's why the boat was over there. And fuel was actually cheaper in Turkey than it was in Greece. So we fill up there. So at about 10 o'clock in the evening, I fired up the engines. A couple of beautiful Caterpillars, 452s, I think. Omar cast off my lines, and he wished me luck. And he helped me uh, time my departure, so to speak, while the police were eating dinner out back underneath a tree where they wouldn't see the boat move and they wouldn't be able to hear it. So I maneuvered the boat close to the stern of Abella's boat. Alice was waiting with a bag, and she hopped onto the transom. I turned the boat toward the mouth of Marmorous Bay. You know, there is a speed limit. It's like 10 knots going through the mouth of the bay. And I didn't want to draw any attention to the boat, so I followed 
the speed limit. And Alice sat in the salon. I was up on the upper deck, the flybridge. And I could see that she was crying. And once through the mouth of the bay, I headed straight for Greek waters. It was 12 nautical miles west-southwest, and I was going at a speed of 28 knots. In a half an hour, I'd be in Greek waters, comfortably in Greek waters, and the Turks couldn't touch me. I reduced my speed to a comfortable 18 to 20 knots and set my course for Cyprus. I came down into the pilot house, settled in, and Alice came in and sat silently next to me. And we listened to the low roar of the engines. Thank you, she said. I don't know if this is the right thing to do, but it is done. And I said cheerfully, trying to cheer her up. You can work as my stewardess. You can help me keep the boat going, and I'll keep you on the boat, and you know we can get in and out of customs. It's no big deal, and Cyprus is easy. Egypt may be a bit difficult, but I have a contact who will help us. She pulled off her veil, and her right eye was bruised black and blue. A vein had popped in her eyeball, and half her eye was blood red. I'm not so pretty. Your owners will never accept me. They will. They're nice people. They're academics. They teach at the universities, the university in, um, in Athens. And they're very nice, and they're very understanding. She didn't seem to really buy it, but we made it to Cyprus in the late afternoon and um, fueled up. And Alice had gotten you know, her feet under her a little bit through time. She helped with the lines. Um, she wore a uniform like me, a polo shirt with the boat name blazoned on the back and khaki shorts. And, you know, the clothes are kind of like a disguise in a way because everybody knows that when you're dressed like that with khaki shorts and a polo, that you're boat crow. And so nobody's really going to say anything to you. Um, none of the authorities will because they know that you're just going to say, oh, you got to talk to the captain and then they have to go find the captain and he's probably drunk in, in a bar somewhere. So they were kind of, they were good for disguise and they were also very good in sort of a utilitarian way because it was still warm and mostly her clothes were, you know, she had a couple of pairs of jeans that she had brought and some sweaters and other than that, she didn't really have very much. Um, Nabella had actually thrown her clothes, her good clothes, into the sea. So we went out for dinner. We had some kebabs and soup and salad. I bought her some sunglasses to cover her eye. She went to the pharmacy, and I, of course, waited outside, and she bought some makeup and some hair dye and some personal hygiene items and... She seemed to be clawing her way out of a very depressing hole. For, more, for my part, I was falling and smiling. Confidence in my writer's arrogant tether to the world. 
I was on this great adventure, this deliciously wonderful, crazy woman, and not understanding, not really getting any perspective at all. I was just me, all selfish me going down the hole. So while we were walking back, I heard keys rattling in her purse. I said, you have keys? And her voice perked up. At least they sounded somewhat, it sounded somewhat positive. But I knew there was a long way to go. The keys were for her apartment in Cairo. And then I asked, thinking, where exactly is your passport, do you think? I mean, physically, where do you think it is? And she said, Nabila would have put it in the safe. I said, oh, do you have the combination? No, it takes a key. And she lifted the keys from her purse and showed me the key to the safe. She shook her head no. She wasn't going to try and steal back the passport, although she had thought about it. We were back on the boat and heading to Port Said the next morning. The sleep had improved her disposition. She made me English breakfast, an English breakfast, eggs, beans, tomato, ham. She was cheerful. We had like a solid 20-hour run. The sea state was calm. There was overcast and fog in the evening, and then the day was just filled with super bright sunshine. You know, beautiful, bright fall sunshine. Delivering a yacht over long distance by yourself um, takes some endurance and lots of coffee. And I have a system of mixing fresh fruits and candy, mostly Starburst, um, coffee with Baileys, lots of water. And I eat light. And I just manage to stay up the whole night. And it's, doesn't, it's not a problem most of the time. Um, you know, I kind of mentally prepare for it, especially because I'm by, by myself. And Alice fell asleep on my lap. She would abruptly jump up in terror, and then seeing where she was, she would go back to sleep. The next morning, I could see that dusty, gray, dark gray haze over Egypt as we got closer. And the shipping traffic was all around us, and I really had to pay attention because we were going pretty fast. You know, container ships going into the Suez and coming out, it's as busy as a major airport at peak hours. Only this is like 24-7 with ships coming in and out. And Alice finally was awake, and she made some coffee for us, and we sipped coffee together. We watched the traffic and the radar, and the low haze burned off, and it suddenly revealed a bright day, and it was almost like a metaphor for her attitude. She seemed to come to some sort of conclusions, I suppose, in her mind, and she was like, okay, um, and she had some, she wanted to confess some things to me, and I I tried to be very, very patient and, and to listen and, and, and not to be a horny dog and just let things happen, you know. And she said to me, she says, I didn't want to do it. She says, I didn't want to have sex with you. But Nabila insisted. It turned him on. What he really liked really was the other woman. He would insist that there would be no penetration on me. And of course... That rule didn't apply to him. You know, and a couple of times the men got really angry, but Nabila would just kick him off the boat. He had a gun. He would point a gun at their head. 
And then he would make the wife do all sorts of things. He was really a super pervert. And I said, how did you get involved with him in the first place? She said, I was young and very naive. He was handsome. He was a smooth talker. He was rich. We courted for like a year. Everything was very proper, very, you know, family. Everything was proper. And, and we got married in a proper way. I, I converted to Muslim, converted to be a Muslim. Not, there was nothing kinky about sex. And then he started this calendar business, and he went nuts for porn. He bought a boat, and we sailed around. And I suppose he got caught up in the whole freedom of sailing. Being naked and having people see me naked turned him on. And I, I supported, I enabled him, and I just, I lost myself in it. It happens, I said. You still have a long life to lead. It's, it's, it's not as bad as you think it is. And I said, it's certainly not the worst in the world. She says, you're right, it's not. But I don't want you to feel obligated to me. You've helped me enough, and I'm going home to Cairo. Nabila will come around. He does have a soft spot. I said, you aren't afraid? She says, no, I'm fine. She said, this isn't your battle. So we ended up going to Port Syed, managing all the traffic, and, you know, it's just a cool place, by the way. And she looked at me and she had said a couple of times, this is not your battle. So we tied up the boat. She gathered her things. She put on her veil. And she kissed me on the cheek and walked down the mall. She stopped. And she ran back to me. And I thought, okay, she's going to stay. She's, she changed her mind. Okay, this is great. She ran into my arms and she kissed me hard in the mouth. If I could love... People, she said, if I could love normal, if I could be a normal person and love you, I would love you forever. And she kissed me and she pushed me away and ran toward the bus station. My tether snapped, drawing me away from the darkness and up into the light. The recoil had knocked the wind out of me. I could see that letting this woman go or or not standing up more for her or whatever it was that she was just simply gone saving myself that's the writer that's the that's like oh yeah we're just here to observe and experience a little and then we're going to leave and live happily ever after and i always felt like i should have done something more like maybe get her to stay for the whole season or something, but she was determined. So about four years later, I'd had a bunch of adventures in different parts of the world, and then I hadn't been back to that part of the world in like maybe four years. And my friends were there, Alana, Christine, and Oscar, and Margarita, and we all had this dinner in a fancy restaurant in Rhodes. 
to my surprise, Nabila was sitting at the end of the table. He wore dark sunglasses, even though it was nighttime. I went over to him, you know, out of politeness for the group and, and shook his hand. We shared chilly pleasantries. He knew what I had done. And I knew what he had done. He had beat his wife. And a few years had passed, but not much had changed. I didn't bring Alice up, but I wanted to. Then I decided I was, and then this woman shows up. And she embraces Nabila. And it could have been Alice's twin sister. She was very friendly to me. She was English. Going on, she looked exactly like Alice. It almost broke my heart to see this woman. I went back to the, my seat at the end of the table, the other end of the table, and Nabila's new wife, as I was to learn, draped all over him. And even though I couldn't see his eyes, I knew he was looking directly at me. And Christina leaned into my ear and whispered, that is his new wife. Spooky. She looks like Alice. And I said, where is Alice? You don't know? She committed suicide. She jumped out of the window of her apartment. Are we sure she wasn't pushed? She was depressed. No shit. I stood up and I wanted to kill Nabila. He shot me a half smile. And he took pleasure in seeing me receive the news of Alice's death. He knew, I knew, he had killed her. And I left the table, never to return again. Thanks for listening. Um... I hope you enjoyed the story. It, it is um, actually a true story. And um, he still roams around today, I'm sure. I'm also sure there's probably many more victims. Because he kind of was in this weird shit. But Cairo is a beautiful place. And if you have an opportunity to go visit, visit. Uh, Egypt is an amazing place. I want to thank everybody for listening. Um... I'm going to be taking the next two weeks off. Um, I will be back uh, on the 25th of August. I have uh, a few things that I have to do and take some time off. We'll have some more stories. Finish out the year. I want to thank uh, Paulette McWilliams for singing our intro. Uh, she just came back from a uh, a great uh, tour of uh, Austria and the record is doing really well I also want to thank uh, all the people that help and um, we're very happy that uh, you're listening to us and uh, we would urge you to write a comment uh, like us share us help us grow the community and you know, leave some notes if you like uh, this kind of stories around sailing. And um, let me know. 
I really appreciate it. Thank you. This is Scott Dodgson. I hope for calm seas and steady breezes. Thank you.